This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Welcome in, friends. I'm Randy Moore. I'm the Randy of the Randy and Andy podcast. Hello, friends. I'm uh, Pastor Andy. I'm the Andy of the podcast. And our guest today is the Reverend Jerry. And Jerry Raritan is, uh, he is our only guest. Uh, this, is, this is the second time that we've had a guest, and it's Jerry. It's like, Jerry, it's like the Tonight Show, making an appearance on there and counting them, or guest hosting Saturday Night Live. So you're already up to two. Wow, I'm very honored. Very honored. <laughs> Jerry, it's good to have you here. Um, Jerry is a retired United Methodist pastor, and he is retired in Evansville. Jerry has two daughters here, and he and his wife Nancy relocated to Evansville and found Methodist Temple. Jerry, would you just in about 60 seconds just give us the Jerry story? Oh, 60 seconds. (laughs) Yeah, well, I've been a United Methodist pastor for 42 years, been in five different stations, most recently at Noblesville First, United Methodist Church, was there seven years. Did spend 16 years in New Albany at Silver Street United Methodist Church. And I was just very uh, concerned about finding a church that would share my values and my heart for affirming, inclusive uh, stands towards all people, and I was very grateful to find Methodist Temple very much already there, and so I feel very much at home here. Yeah, we're so happy you found Methodist Temple. You add so much, and the reason we have you on today, Jerry, is because the church has something coming up called Open Community. It happens on Wednesday evenings. It's a meal, and it's a class. Many times it'll be more than one class. This time it's one class, and you and Pastor Andy are going to be teaching that class, and it's about the general conference of the United Methodist Church that's that's coming up. Could you guys talk about that just briefly, and we'll come back to it a little bit later. General conference. Yeah, uh, well, General Conference is like the highest legislative body of the United Methodist Church. So uh, this body is the one that makes the designation of what we would call our discipline, our church law. And so uh, the big conversation um, in General Conference for the last, oh, 50 years or so has been around human sexuality. And, of course, there's a lot going on currently in the United Methodist Church when it comes about when it comes to homosexuality and, and uh, all the things that go on. Uh, with this conversation with, with gender sexuality. And so uh, General Conference is getting ready to come up in April again. And so we thought it was uh, a good idea to, to teach a class about, well how, well, how did we get here as United Methodists when it comes to this conversation? And then I uh, asked Jerry to come along and, and talk about some of the Bible verses that speak specifically to same-sex uh, relationships. And so uh, we decided just to make them one offering. And I will say it's very popular. It's one of our highest attended we have we already have like 72 rsvps wow. uh, and we don't ever rsvp at the church so um so i i knew it would be um an interesting topic people would be interested in it yeah well the figure i heard about 15 minutes ago was 80 already oh yes i mean yes. You'll, you'll probably hit 100 and that's that's really that's really we were gonna good. we were gonna have it in the fellowship hall jerry <laughs> and now we've upgraded to the sanctuary oh now. my yeah so just <laughs> great fyi so you know yeah so uh, that's kind of Andy, Pastor Andy's uh, understanding of General Conference and everything going on in a nutshell, but certainly Jerry, I know, has things he can add. Yeah, I would say uh, this General Conference is a key one for many of us. Um, 
as Andy said, we've been fighting this battle for many, many years, and it's pretty much settled. Uh, the people that do not want to be affirming and inclusive have, for the most part, left. Still stirring up a little bit of trouble, though, so just, this general conference has a somewhat concern. I think it's very hopeful that uh, there's three things on my agenda I'd like to see happen. One would be the uh, elimination of the harmful language in our Book of Discipline that says that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Uh, that just hurts so many people. It's an insult to who they are, how God has created them. So I think uh, there's a very good chance it only takes a simple majority to eliminate that language, and I think we can get that accomplished for sure. Second goal would be to strive for regionalization, and that will be much more difficult because it requires a two-thirds vote. So I think maybe perhaps we can at least lay the groundwork. It might have to get done at a later conference for that to happen. And what that will do is allow Africa to choose the rules that they work by, which they really already have the freedom to do so. But the United States is constrained by the General Conference. And so the rules that uh, don't really fit in a country where uh, same-sex marriage is legal, where uh, we've come to a much different understanding of that, we don't have the freedom Mm -hmm. to set those rules for ourselves. So we need to do that. And the other would be to put an end to the disaffiliations. We've had enough time for the people that really want to leave can leave and do so. And so eliminate the... The, it have, the time period has actually already ended, and the people that are fighting for more uh, disaffiliations are striving for that to be extended, mm-hmm. which would just make it mean more churches having to fight this battle on and on. It's time to move on. If people really want to leave, the, we have this structure in place that somebody really needs to leave. They can. They just have to pay for their unfunded pension liability and, and cover apportionments for a year. So the, those steps are already in place and ready to be used. So we don't think we need an extension of that. Okay, so if you're listening and you've not been following along since 1972, this is a lot, and you might have questions. Send us those questions, and we were talking about this just a few minutes ago. We'll bring Jerry back after General Conference, and, and we'll answer any questions that you might send up, because this is a complex issue, and it has been uh, debated for a long, long time. Now, here's where I'm going to connect it to the sermon, and Pastor Andy and I with this podcast, generally what we do is we reflect on that last Sunday sermon. And we take pretty much the bulk of the time to do that. But Pastor Andy, in his sermon, brought up this issue and asked the question, how are we doing at United Methodists at loving like Christ's love? So I wanna hit the sermon just briefly and then come back to this question. And so the the sermon was the first in a five-part sermon series, a Lenten series on the cross. Uh, atonement or at one that understanding the cross and this sermon number one was that the cross proves God's love and so I'll let you put that in the tightest nutshell that that you can Andy okay um, <laughs> well uh, so the way I had defined atonement in my sermon was yeah and on a very basic level in a general general understanding of atonement it's like removing the barriers that exist between us and God and very closely associated with that is also removing the barriers uh, between, that exist between us and others, too. It's all kind of connected. And so I'm going through different understandings of the cross, and the most foundational one, of course, is to prove God's love to us. Jesus died to prove God's love to us and to teach us, well, there's really no barrier between us and God in the sense that there's nothing that keeps us away from God's love. But the question becomes, how does God love us? What does that love look like? And the way I presented in the sermon is like, 
Well, God's love is constant, never stops. In fact, God suffers along with us and tries to help us build the pieces back together and, and restore us to well-being. Now, to be a people of God, children of God, the question becomes, how do we embody that love towards others? And, it, and a big implication would be like, well, you have to love people who you disagree with. You have to love people that think differently than you. And, and uh, in our denomination, uh, the statistics seem to suggest we haven't always done very well when it comes to loving people that we disagree with. Uh, we've had a lot of disaffiliations since 2019 over uh, General Conference and the conversations going on in General Conference. And so I kind of put it to the congregation, in a sense, in the sermon, in preparation for open community also. Yeah, so it would be easy to demonize the, the other side, but I appreciate it so much because we have been frustrated, right? And there, there are people um, on the side of in inclusivity that are like, you know, okay, they're, they're leaving and, and goodbye, uh, good riddance, and maybe we can go on and we won't have to fight about this anymore. But on the other hand, I do believe that we do have to pause and say that this isn't a victory. I mean, it's too bad. It's too bad that we couldn't stay together because, as you said, uh, the death of Jesus proves God's love for the ungodly. That's all of us. For the, for the foreigner, you know, the stranger in the land, for the adulterer even. We can put that into spiritual terms uh, from Hosea. Uh, uh, it proves God's love for the sinner. That's all of us. All of us on both sides of this are, are in that camp for the enemy. So somewhere between us and the enemy stands our Methodist brothers and sisters who are separating from us. That has to be mourned in some sense. Mm -hmm. I've been mourning. I, I, I'm, I'm sad that we've lost some of these folks that are disaffiliated. I, I disagree with them. I, I do. I, we don't see uh, marriage eye to eye. We don't. We don't see ordination eye to eye. Um, there's some bigger differences theologically. I, I, I know it's th those are there too. I readily acknowledge all of that. But um, we're still in this together. It's like my question is, well, where are you going to disaffiliate from in the end? Uh, you might get out of the denomination, but I, as far as I can tell, we're still breathing the same air. We're still loved by the same God. We need to learn to learn learn to live together anyway. And this whole sexuality conversation, it's, it's a manifestation of a bigger problem we're having as a society, and that is how do we work through our differences? How do we work through this conflict? How do we work through these obvious challenges we're having? And, and the church should be on the front end of that, but unfortunately we're, we're kind of behind the times when it comes to trying to bring people together, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I've got a pretty personal story that kind of relates to that okay. conflict that you're talking about. because. Yeah. Uh, there's a pastor here in town. <clears throat> we used to play basketball together. We had a group of pastors that met every Tuesday for years in New Albany uh, to play basketball. And so this person said, I became very good friends with, and we've been very much on opposite sides of this mm -hmm. issue. And so that pastor now has taken his church out of the denomination. Interesting thing was uh, I bought season tickets to the University of Evansville basketball games, and I go to sit down. Look who's sitting right next to me, that particular <laughs> pastor. And, right. and so it's just like, God, you got a sense of humor yes. here because I still like this person very much. He's a great pastor. We just feel very differently about this. Sure. And so we're, we're relating and talking and uh, like we used to, just we avoid this particular topic. Yeah. Reminds me of the way I explain this in my own life is that I put on my mom goggles when it comes to this issue. My mom uh, would never call herself a traditionalist, but she was the way we define it for this case. 
she would be seen as a traditionalist. And my mom is not an unloving person. She's not a hateful person. What she wants to do is to honor what she believes she's reading in, in the Bible. And so I try to approach this uh, with humility uh, because of my mom and, and others like that. Um, so that, that, always helps. that always helps me because I do get frustrated because on the one hand, it is a justice issue because what we're talking about, what we're saying and what we're doing actually has an effect on real people. It does. It does. Yes. And, and I always try to have a certain amount of grace because I used to be a traditionalist. I understand the argument they're coming from. I used mm-hmm. to make those arguments. But God has brought me along a different path, and I've come to see things much differently. And now I realize there are people on the other side who are hurt horribly by those stances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have to deal with it. We have to be able to speak up. And, and like you say, we don't demonize the other side, but we speak out of love and say, hey, because of my love for all people, I have to, to stand up and speak. Yes. And we're also, while my mom would stand on the authority of the Bible, we are people of the book as well. And that's the one thing that sort of gets under my skin when we're told that, well, we've set the Bible aside. No, no, I've been reading the Bible seriously since 1989 every day. I take it seriously. I don't take it literally everywhere, but but I take it very seriously. And so I think, are there progressives who have set aside the Bible? Of course there are. Are there conservatives who don't pick up a Bible? Of course there are. But I think that the case we want to make is one that we can make from Scripture. Well, I hope that's what contribution I'll make to the open community, the two sessions I'll be leading is helping you see that uh, I'm somebody who the Scriptures have been very important. And at one time, I was a biblical literalist. Um, I've come to see it in much different light, but I still have a great appreciation for the Scriptures. It, it helped me survive a, a time in my life that was very lonely. So it's still extremely sacred to me, but I think when you look at the historical context of these passages that have often been used to harm other people, that you'll see that it's speaking to a different reality. So I hope that that's something... Uh, I'm not gonna. I know I'm not gonna convince somebody who may be very adamant about where they're coming from, but I think I can uh, be helpful to people that want to be faithful to the scriptures, but also believe that in their heart they're feeling that we need to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. So there are essentially six scriptures, and I don't know if you want to get into the detail of that today. We can, or we can leave that for another time. But I think that we can make a couple of comments about that. If there are six that's not very many, um, right? That, that's the, the one part of it. The other thing I think that we can say is, is that the Bible doesn't have a category for what we're dealing with today. It doesn't have a category for two people of the same sex who want to be in a committed, loving, monogamous relationship. That's just not there, right? I'll let Jerry ask. No, <laughs> no. I yeah. The the Bible was written during a time much different than ours. Uh, you're talking 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years ago. A lot has changed um, about our understanding of human biology, of, of understanding of all kinds of things. Like let's just be let's just be honest. We just don't see the world the same way necessarily. And so, uh, what Jerry's going to do, I know, is is talk a lot about historical what we call historical context and what are they actually talking about? What was going on in the worldview of the people? All these kinds of things and. 
And so we want to honor, we want to take the scriptures seriously, um, but we also want to take them contextually too. And and that's kind of what, well, that's what a pastor's trained to do when we go to seminary is to kind of do this work. Right, yeah. right. That's why we do that, that hard work. I think when you put these scriptures in a historical context, you'll find especially five of the six, it's really not talking about the same kind of reality we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the ones that are ch- still challenging, I, there's one from Romans I, that I still wrestle with a mm-hmm. little bit, but I think I would say if Paul knew what we knew today, he would describe it a little bit differently. And, and they're talking about realities that were uh, real de- depravity. I mean, the abuse of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think people will appreciate when they hear the historical background, it'll make so much more sense to them. And they'll realize that it's still speaking to realities of evil that we need to speak up against today. Something that I got into just this week, something I found that was so helpful because this puts a positive spin using the Bible to make the case that we're trying to make. And that is taking a look at the 15th chapter of Acts and the argument that the early church had over the, in, over the inclusion of Gentiles and over the issue of circumcision. You cannot make a biblical case that says it's okay not to be circumcised if you want to be mm-hmm. in the in-group. You cannot make a biblical case. Yet the early church made that case, and they made that case on the presence of the Spirit. I think that's, I think that's helpful. It's a great case study. It yes. really is. I, I won't have time to get into that. No, that sounds, this sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it is but, a great case study. It's a perfect example of what we're dealing with today. Yeah, I, the, the early church clearly th- felt like they could be led by the Spirit, and God was still speaking and, and taking us in new directions. That it's clear in the way that the early church was set up, and and you can also talk about the dietary things that they walked away from um, in terms of very much prescribed in the Hebrew Bible, mer- very much talked about. This is what you eat, this is what you don't eat. The early church walks away from some of those um, as they try to include Gentiles and the way that they ate and I know all that stuff does not necessarily apply to what we're talking about and thinking about today, but in that day, it's a big deal because they're walking away from the tra- traditional understanding of how we apply the Scripture. And so, uh, in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun, um, but the questions are a little bit different for us today, I guess. Yeah, they were walking away from a literal interpretation of the Torah law as they understood it that day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I, I think that that's helpful. Um, okay, where do we want to go from here, guys? We could go in so many different directions. Oh, one of the things I did want to ask you, because, Jerry, you said that you were a literalist. You were not only a traditionalist, you were a literalist. Andy, you, I think you've explained that you've come from a similar position. I know I have come from a similar position. So how did we get there, and how do we get the rest, <laughs> the rest to come with us there? Right. Well, I mean, that's a question we're wrestling with. Yes, but um, uh, for me, it happened through relationships. My own personal experiences with people and my own personal experiences with what it was like to be them and uh, what it was like to um, go through what they went through. And as they told me their stories, that shaped my heart, that changed my heart. And, And just quite simply, like, well, it seems like the loving thing to do is to to change my mind here uh, when it comes to marriage and ordination. And so the way I guess, just to say it simply, like I related my way into holiness. I related my way into a heart change. I didn't, 
you know, it wasn't like some big study that changed me. It wasn't like some big presentation that changed me. It's like, well, this person has a name. And they're a kind and loving, good person. They're clearly a child of God. So how am I, who am I to step in in the way of that? And so for me, that's the big pivot. Now, we can get into biblical literalism. Biblical literalism becomes very difficult when you're a pastor. I'll just throw that out there. Because every weekend, we're actually studying very, very seriously the Scripture because we're trying to preach something. Well, over a period of time, time what begins to happen is like, you just start to see, like, uh, Scripture conflicts with Scripture, and it doesn't all fit in the nice, neat box that was once presented to us. And, and it, I mean, there's so many examples of that. And so literalism becomes much more, became much more difficult for me as I continued to be a pastor, just like, this just doesn't fit. Because uh, the box that I was given when I first became a Christian is like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, period. And then I still believe uh, that the Bible speaks truth, yes, but literalistically, I, it's harder. It becomes much more difficult when you have to study it um, in depth every week. So, well, to, to treat the whole Bible as if it's one <clears throat> one printed word is a misunderstanding of the Scripture. It's a book of books. Yeah, it's been written through time. There's been development, and you see. I think for me, when I started to begin to open my mind and move away from literalism, I had faithful people. It was relationship. Very faithful people who were inspired by God, were inspired by the Scriptures, and they helped me see the human dimension that's involved with Scripture. Mm-hmm. It is a divine human document. And if you don't recognize that human dimension, like, and some of it is just is appreciation of like the book of Matthew. You read the book of Matthew, read it one sitting, and you'll discover there's five sections to it. Why is there five sections? Because there's Torah. five books of the Torah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a human genius there, you yes. know? Yeah. And so you appreciate And then you realize, why was he? Why did he do that? Because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And you realize that he's writing to a historical context. He's writing to a specific group of people. And when you begin to appreciate that, then it helps you begin to understand, so what is the universal truth I need to pull out of these scriptures that speak to my day and my age my situation. It's hard work. It's a necessary work if you really want to find truth that endures. You've talked about your experiences. Uh, Andy, you talked about yours. Jerry, you've talked about your daughters, and you wanted to be in a place where they would feel comfortable to be, and uh, they're comfortable to be here. And, um, you know, that's the same, that's my experience too. All you have to do is to get out and to to meet people before you realize, as you said, Andy, that, that they're, they're just real people. They're not, there's nothing to be feared there. The same thing, I explained this to my private, previous congregation in 2019 when this came up with that special session. Um, I said that the same, a similar kind of thing happened to me with racism. I remember when uh, segregation ended and uh, black boys and girls came to Harper Elementary School, which was all white. I'm sure there was, it, there wasn't any overt racism in me, but I'm sure there was some uh, latent racism until I met Brian and Dion and, and the black guys that I played basketball with and just found out, hey, wait a minute. So it, it is experiential and uh, I kind of I hold out the hope. I mean, maybe I'm naive enough to think that maybe, just like um, when the Methodist Church split over slavery, slavery and came back together, 
maybe one day we'll all come back together. Maybe one day we will. Well, certainly truth, history is on our side, Mm -hmm. I think, when it comes to this particular issue. Uh, And we've seen this in so many other situations. Uh, The challenge would be, how many years did it take for us to come back together after yeah. slavery split us up? It was nearly a century. Yes, it won't be in our lifetime. So, yeah. But, you know, and that, I think that does bring up a good point. Just like my friend that I talk about sitting next to, how I love that person now is significant perhaps in his journey. Mm-hmm. You know, if I start treating him as an enemy because he doesn't believe the way I believe, I mean, that wall just gets bigger. And perhaps by my love he might begin to see and soften his stance. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of daughters, um, one of my daughters just told me one day, and she was raised and baptized in the United Methodist Church, said, in so many words, she said, Dad, I can't go into a Methodist church that has in its discipline this kind of discrimination. And then one of my members at my previous church said, as I explained my stance on it, they said, "Are you? Do you think you're influenced by your daughter and what she said?" I said, "Of course I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course I am." And I and I take that seriously. And you know, one of our rules as Methodists is do no harm. I try to remember. I try to remember that uh, because, as I said before, what we say and what we do affect affects real people. You talked about experience, and man, I. Uh, Albert Outler, you know, the scholar that came up with the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Wow, I mean, I think that is so helpful. Uh, Scripture is still primary, but we read Scripture with the help of tradition and and, uh, reason and and experience. And I think the traditionalists, it's the way I read it, is that they they kind of want to go back to that sola scriptura thing. And I'm not ready to go there. I think that is so helpful and so real to to the way we live out our Christian lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely, for me, I'll speak to that a little bit in one of the sessions I teach, but I remember when I went to Israel, and I did not realize how much I'd created mental images in my mind of the scriptures that I've read. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Israel and just blew them all out of the water. It's like, I had to rethink everything. And Especially uh, later on, I took a trip to Ephesus and got to see how they, they've created the facades of the city as it w- was in biblical times. And realize this isn't some little podunk town like I had pictured in my mind when I've read the scripture over and over and over. This was a sophisticated town of 250,000 people, which was a big city in that, those days. And realize that Paul is a very sophisticated theologian. And it, it really made me to take more seriously what he's trying to do, what he has to say, and why he's saying it. Okay. Um, Jerry, we know you've got to go, and so we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. Uh, Pastor Andy and I usually can't wrap this quickly, but uh, we're, little, we're gonna... We can get a little chatty. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have some questions that came in this week. Um, let's just hit these real quick as a way to wrap this up. And we are talking about uh, our Lenten uh, spiritual practices, and so this is the uh, the first question relates to that. What can we do daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly to become more spiritually formed United Methodists? You go. You want me to go? Okay. Well, I mean, I would just point to the tradition itself. Uh, Wesley talked about uh, there are two different categories, I guess you could say, of practices. There's works of 
piety and works of mercy. Works of piety are the kind of traditional things that you think about when you think of spiritual practices, reading the Bible. We talked a lot about that today. Uh, he also recommended fasting, not as popular today, um, and then being in worship, uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, these kinds of things. Those are works of piety. Works of mercy are like uh, outward signs of service uh, and love and charity to others. And he said both of these are very important if we're going to take our faith commitment very seriously. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you can't just sit around and pray in your room. you got to go out and serve people. That kind of balance is what Wesley would recommend. And I think we each have to find our own way of, of um, forming the practices that shape our spiritual lives. I, I wouldn't say we're locked into what I just mentioned, but you have to intentionally try to tune into God, but then you have to intentionally try to tune into others as well. Okay. Now, I'd say I'm in an interesting phase of my life because now being retired, I don't have to do any of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And, and for a while I wondered, because, you know, when you're in ministry, you get burnt out a little bit, especially when it came through COVID. And, you know, I wondered, well, I want to go to church. And, and I'm, I feel fortunate that I find worship energizing and stimulating every time I come to Methodist Temple. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful to Pastor Andy for uh, the hard work he does. He's, he's constantly thinking theologically, trying to sort out what God wants him to say each week, and I sense that and feel that. So I find that weekly practice very helpful to me. And in my role as, as development director at Westman Woods, I feel like my new mission is, is the environment. And so anything I can do that furthers that to me is, is part of my service right now. Absolutely. One more question, and then the third question, I'm just going to pose it. We're not going to try to answer it because it would take more than one podcast. Uh, but do you see the trend of declining church attendance, especially among young people in America, starting to change? In other words, is a revival near? And revival was the way you opened and you closed your sermon, uh, Pastor Andy. Is a revival near? Well, the question is, what what is a revival? I, that's a I, and that's a big. That could be a whole like podcast series, but. What is a revival? And uh, in the sermon I talked about it, it's like a re-energizing of a person's sense of meaning, which in turn transforms our way of life, our morals, which in turn transforms our way of mission, the way we serve our community. But then the thing about revival is it's always done in community. It's not done individually. It's done together. Those are kind of just, if I was going to make a cake and call it revival, those would be the ingredients, I think, that are in it on a basic level. But... uh, I don't know, Hessian, all that, you know, getting all that kind of <laughs> spelled out, it, it could take a while. So do I think that we're on the verge of revival, though? Um, I think there's spiritual hunger in our culture today. I, I think that uh, the mental health crisis that we're having, I think that the questions particularly young people are asking, I, I think these, a lot of this is spirit, are spiritual questions. And um, they're searching and the church, if we're going to be relevant in this, we have to think seriously about the language that we're using and how it connects to those questions. And this is not new. Uh, this happens. This has happened historically throughout the um, history of Christianity again and again. Um, we go through what Phyllis Tickle, who's a really great scholar, talked about. The church goes through these rummage sales where we have to like let go of things that aren't working anymore and, and think through our language. And I, I think if you put all this together... 
I am encouraged of the possibility of what is yet to head, but then I have to also say I'm not entirely sure about <laughs> what is coming. Um, so the hunger is there, I guess is what I would say. St. Augustine didn't have everything right, but he was right about the fact that our hearts are restless until they rest yes. in, in God and, and in Christ. I do believe that. I do be, I, that hunger is there, and that hunger will, will be fed by the Spirit. May, may not happen in our lifetime, but if we oh, trust God. Yeah. Well, I, I work as a part-time chaplain at UE, and some of the interactions I've had with the students are fascinating. Uh, just two really quick moments I can think about is like, one moment I was approached by a group of students and they said, what is the relationship between religion and the University of Evansville? And I just found they went out of their way to ask me, what is the relationship of religion? I think, wow, that's a, I'm so glad you're asking that question. The other one was uh, from another student and she just simply asked, how do I get started? How do I get started with God? How do I get started with this? And, and she came up with that question, as far as I could tell, on her own. It was a question that just emerged. And in those I mean, you could see those. You could see the fact that they're asking those questions in the negative. But I see, I see it as a positive because I feel like that's an example of what we as Methodists would describe as prevenient grace. That God is creating this longing within these people to ask this question in the first place. It, it will never go away. It will be there. I agree, Jerry. We'll give you the last word. I know you got to go on revival. Well, if you're going to define revival as church attendance, I think you better be patient. Because I don't see that. I think the United States is kind of going the route of Europe, becoming more and more secular mm -hmm. all the time. But what I do see, I agree with Andy, that there is a hunger for spirituality. In my last congregation, one of the things we did was launch a... We, we had 120 acres that was designated, given us in the 80s for a retreat center. We still had that, but never grew to great extent that they, I think they had once envisioned. And my associate pastor... Aaron Hobbs had come back with an idea from the Wabash Leadership Institute that Andy was also a part of it there on that together, uh, saw an organic farm at work. And so we launched an organic farm with the primary purpose to raise fresh produce for Hamilton County food pantries. And we've been able to grow that. In four years became self-sustaining and has doubled its number of servings donated to Hamilton County food pantries every year. I think they'll be up to 60,000 next year. And what we've seen is there's such appreciation. They're like, this is run by a church? You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. we're actually meeting a need that's out there. And, and so the, that mission has grown incredibly in Hamilton County. And I think churches got to find those kind of needs and meet them authentically, you know, not, not for the purpose to get them to church, but to right. meet that need, people will see that and they'll begin to realize that that extraordinary love that Christ has for us is being lived out and they will want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Very good. Jerry Reardon, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to look forward to these four sessions. Um, listeners, uh, friends, if you have questions, send them in and I think Jerry, he's never turned down an invitation yet. You may be, uh, you may be a three-timer before anybody else gets in, in one time. But uh, Jerry, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Pastor Andy, as always, it's been good spending this time with you. And uh, friends, thank you for listening. We appreciate it so much. Hope you have a great week. and We'll see you next time. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. 
Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 8.30 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.